Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Barrett, Mr. Anderson, Mr. Emmett, members of the board of directors, those of you who are alumni, those of you participating in the Charlotte uh, Treatment Center Conference on Alcoholism. It's a real pleasure for me to be here tonight. Fact of business, I'm always honored when anybody anymore asks me to go any place to speak, frankly. Uh, used to be, I got some invitations, some degree of regularity to talk about other matters, but uh, I think the situation in Washington is beyond the talking point now, so I prefer to talk about something else. <laughs> and I like to introduce myself as uh, Wilbur Mills, a uh, very, very grateful alcoholic. Now, I do that for two or three reasons. Usually, I'm not by myself when I'm talking about alcoholism. I'm the only recovered alcoholic in the crowd, and somebody will say, Hi, Wilbur. Well, I'm by myself again. <laughs> Thank you. Now I feel at home. <laughs> the other reason is that I have to constantly remind myself of the fact that I have what AMA and the psychiatrists through their organization, the World Health Organization, a number of other people better qualified than I am, uh, tell us is a disease. I really prefer to call it an illness, because I don't know of any medicine I can take to get over this disease I have. I didn't have any fever with it, and uh, I don't know any way to prevent it or anything of that sort. So I like to call it an illness, but I am addicted to alcohol. And that means that I have a disease that stays with me the rest of my life, one that, uh, fortunately, I can do something about, uh, and I've learned how to do that through uh, association with other recovering alcoholics. I'm always, it's always suggested to us, and I'm always reminded that I'm not a member, never was a member of the Senate, so that I am bound by precedent as a member of the House to speak for a limited period of time, not go on forever. Now, sometimes I forget that. So I put my watch here on the table for purposes of not hearing it tick, but hoping that I'll look at it occasionally and keep up with the time. I assure you that I won't speak for two hours. I don't know enough to talk two hours. Now, I want it clearly understood that I don't stand before you as an authority on alcoholism. The fact of business, I don't think I've ever met an authority on alcoholism. I know one that's introduced as being an authority on television occasionally. But his view and his brand of talk doesn't appeal to me too much. So I concluded that I was awfully glad that I'm not a, an authority on alcoholism if I have to think and talk as this individual does. And I say that with all kindness. He just doesn't know anything about it, in my opinion. Now, all I know about it is what happened to me. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it so you'll know that I didn't lie when I said I was a, an alcoholic. I said I was a grateful, grateful alcoholic, and I didn't say I was a recovering alcoholic. And I don't use that expression, recovering, because, you know, sometimes I might think that I had recovered, and that would be dangerous for me. So I just say that I'm an alcoholic, and that's what I am. That means I'm a former drunk. That means that I did a lot of things that I now wish I hadn't done, actually, but things that I've forgiven myself for doing so that I can look myself in the face in a mirror, shave myself without getting excited and cut my throat or my face. It's a great feeling to be sober. I never realized just how great a feeling it was to be sober over the years when I drank occasionally or when I drank to excess. Finally, it brought me down uh, to my knees. Finally, it left me with an attitude of despair, lack of confidence, completely disenchanted with myself and all, all that goes with it. Some people have suggested to me that I was a high-bottom drunk. I didn't go to jail. I didn't go to the insane asylum. I didn't do a lot of things that others have done. But let me tell you, 
To me, there's no such thing as a high-bottom drunk. I felt as bad inside as anybody could feel. I hurt as much inside. I was as down on myself as anyone in a jail or an insane asylum could have been down on himself. I don't think it's what we do so much as how we feel inside. And I felt as bad as a human being could feel. I'll never forget coming to in the hospital, the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. You know, the senators go to Walter Reed and the members of Congress go to the Naval Hospital. I'm awful glad that was the case because I came in contact with a doctor that knew more about alcoholism than I gave him credit for knowing, a lot more than I knew. A man that really tried to open my eyes but failed to do it. Wasn't his fault. I just happened to be a hard head, slow learner or something. Dumb, I guess. At any rate, I came to in the hospital sometime during the early part of December, and I haven't checked the date. I don't know exactly what date. I don't know whether I'd been in the hospital in a blackout for a day, two days, or a week. But finally, I opened my eyes. I knew where I was, and I was at myself. And as I opened my eyes, I saw this doctor, I guessed he was, he was looked, looked like one. He later told me he was the doctor in charge of my case. And he walked up to the side of the bed and asked me if I knew what was wrong with me. And I said, sure, I know what's wrong with me. Nothing you can do about it. I'm dying. I told him what was wrong with me. I told him I had a tumor of the brain. And he wanted to know how I had reached that conclusion. I said, well, because I've been blanking out, I don't remember from day to day just what's happened. I was very serious about it. I knew my condition. I knew I only had a few weeks, of, maybe a few months at the most to live. And I said, doctor, in addition to that, the tumor is malignant. And I know that a tumor of the brain is inoperative, so I'm reconciled to my fate. He said, well, how do you know it's malignant? I said, well, any doctor with one eye and a half sense knows that if you've got a tumor any place in your body and you lose an excessive amount of weight, it's malignant. He said, now, you may have a tumor, and it may be malignant. We'll find out later about that. But you've got another matter wrong with you that you may not recognize. And I said, what's that, doctor? He said, you've got, you are a chronic alcoholic with an acute case. I didn't mind the word chronic. Everything I'd ever had was chronic. Chronic rhinitis, chronic bronchitis, chronic sinitis, and everything else. So that didn't bother me. I knew I was an acute case because I was dying of a malignant tumor of the brain. So that didn't bother me. But I perked up when I heard that word alcoholic. Now, you heard uh, uh, my introduction here by... Terry, a fellow in that kind of position in life just doesn't become an alcoholic. An alcoholic has to be powerless over something. Liquor, alcohol. Well, I wasn't powerless. I was powerful, I thought. The powerful person doesn't become powerless, I thought. So, anyway, as he was saying that to me and for the few minutes that lapsed, while I held my breath. My whole life passed in review before my mind's eye. And I began to try to analyze to see whether or not the doctor could possibly be right. First of all, I hadn't intended to be an alcoholic. Those people who became alcoholics, in my opinion, had set out in life to be alcoholics. I didn't even intend to take my first drink. I was a kid, about 12, 13, 12, I think, out hunting with two of my friends, rabbit hunting, I guess. We stumbled onto a still under a tree. I never knew the later why all the stills in my country were always under a tree, and I found out from those that operated them that as the smoke went up through the branches and leaves, it disintegrated, and the revenue people couldn't see it from a distance. So they had some degree of protection being under a tree. But in connection with that, anything that was in that tree liable to fall. Well, I looked in this bed and I saw it and 
He suggested to me that he was about ready to put it in some jars, but he wanted me to taste it, see what I thought of it. He had a rifle. Now, what would you have done? Twelve years old, grown man with a rifle? Asking you to sample what he had produced, and I had incidentally loaded the 20 sacks, 100-pound sacks of sugar on his wagon some weeks before. And I knew his wife put up an awful amount of jam and jelly, but I didn't realize she put up that much. I said something to my father about it when I got back in the store, and he said it was none of my business what these people were using sugar for. He knew, of course. But the man had the rifle, and that impressed me, so he handed me the cup, and he said, Now, brush the scum back. Brush the scum back. Put your cup down up to about your elbow and come up with a cup full and drink it and tell me what you think about it. So I did. That gun looked very threatening to me, even though I knew him. I'll tell you what's on, on top of it. Should have been a lesson to me. Anybody that ever saw it should never have taken any of that Arkansas-made home moon, uh, moonshine. White lightning, they called it. About three inches of scum on top of it. I told you it was under the trees. Sometimes the leaves would fall in and all the bugs and everything else on the leaves fell in with the leaves. Occasionally a branch would fall in. Anything happened beyond the branch fell in. That's the birds, <laughs> the frogs, occasionally a coon or a possum. Quite a few squirrels floating around on top of it. I shouldn't have had it because anything that fell into that vat died immediately. <laughs> Just to fall in there. Now, they didn't know, they didn't drink any of it. It wasn't poison or anything like that. The man didn't put lye in it. Didn't have any of that in it. It was just pure Arkansas corn whiskey. But here, everything that was floating around was dead. That should have been enough notice to me. But anyway, I drank that down, and I never could just sip it. I took it down pretty fast. I couldn't speak when he asked me how I liked it. But I sure wasn't going to nod my head that way. Not with him with a gun. He asked me how I liked it. I said, did I, did I like it? And I told him, yeah, I liked it. He said, well, have another one. You can't fly on one wing. So I took another one, and you can imagine what happened to my hunting. I didn't get drunk, but I sure couldn't see the sight at the end of the barrel after I took that second drink. I went off to college as a kid. Freshman year, I'd been there about a month. Got this knock on the door, and there were three of us living in the basement, freshmen. Three great, big, huge fellas. I knew them as seniors. I knew they were football players. They were linemen, weighed 250 pounds apiece, I guess. Came to the door and walked in. We're looking for Wilbur Mills. Which of you is Well, I held up my hand. I thought they wanted to give me a prize or something, you know. So come with us. Well, in those days, you just didn't deny the will of an upperclassman when you were in college. You did what they told you to do, even shine their shoes. But I went with them, and on the way up to about the third floor, they told me they'd selected me to take on the cognac drinking champion of the college. Now, I couldn't understand in the first instance why this fellow making Arkansas corn whiskey picked, uh, decided that I ought to take a drink. I didn't have any reputation for drinking in those days. Then I go to college, and I didn't know I had a reputation over there at the time. I never could figure out why they picked me out. Except I was small. I just weighed about 145 pounds then. About the height I am now. But they were a great big boy. So I went on up there, and I remember taking about three glasses. I don't know whether you remember these kind of glasses that were bigger in the middle than they were at the top and bottom. A little hard to break. We had those kind of glasses, and I remember taking drink for drink with him for three drinks, three glasses. That stuff was awful. It was made out of grapes, all right. That's the only similarity between it and what you can buy today in a liquor store. But let me tell you something. That burned my throat. It burned my toes. It didn't tingle my toes. It burned my toes. It burned my fingers. Now, they said I took some more, but I don't remember it. Anyway, you don't tell the dean of a Methodist-sponsored school that you got drunk the night before. And I got drunk that night. You can't use that as an excuse for missing class. So I learned pretty early in life to con people, I guess. I told them I had a bad cold. My throat was irritated. I could barely talk. But I put on a good image of a person that had pneumonia, I think. Anyway, the nurse gave me an excuse for two days of absenteeism from the class. And I got over it. Now, you can clearly understand that I never even intended to take my first drink. I never intended to get drunk the first time I got drunk. 
Oh, I never thought about being an alcoholic. I didn't drink when I got up in the morning. I went to work, took a shower. I didn't have to, but that time I was taking several pills of Librium a day. You don't have to drink when you're doing that. You get just as high on the Librium as you can on the alcohol, and I was drinking pretty heavy toward the end. A couple of quarts a night at least. A hundred proof vodka at that time. So I was mixing the two of them toward the end. But, you know, I couldn't be an alcoholic. I cleaned up. Alcoholics didn't shave. They didn't bathe. Didn't have a job. I had a job. Didn't have a family. I had a family. In spite of all I was doing, my family stayed with me. So I just didn't qualify in any respect as an alcoholic. And I couldn't believe that I was an alcoholic. Now, two fellas came by. One of them was a United States senator at the time, and another was a newspaper man, and they said I was an alcoholic. They prepared a statement for me, and I put it out. Or let, let them put it out, I think it was on December the 30th. Saying I was an alcoholic, but I told them I didn't believe it. I said, it's all right, I'll accept your version of it, but I don't think I am. I was admitting to something, really, that I didn't believe when I said it. I left the hospital after they couldn't find the tumor. They spent about six weeks, though. They shipped equipment in from out in San Diego. They just had this one big machine. They told me how much it cost. Laid me down and showed my brain on a screen. And the fellow was down here last year, that uh, nosy fellow. Buck D was here last year and spoke. And, and he had sort of attached himself to me. And he told me that in the course of one conversation that I shouldn't make an important decision for a year... In fact, he would do all my thinking for me. And here I was running the country. And I didn't even know whether he had a job or not. So I wasn't going to let him do my thinking for me under any circumstances. But I let these two people do my thinking for me on that occasion. And I put out that statement. But one time, Buck was out there with me. And the doctor was showing my brain on a screen. Trying to find that tumor. And I looked myself. I couldn't see it. Buck said, what is that, doctor, that black thing showing? I said, that's his brain. It sure is little, isn't it? <laughs> All I got in that hospital was just one insult after another. Not just one a day, but several a day. And then this woman came to me and uh, wanted to get me to go downstairs, basement. I didn't know that's where they met all the time, but she'd call some people in, and they were going to put on some kind of a meeting for me. And I was, I didn't belong down there. I didn't have any problems and all. And finally, she prevailed on me. You know what that woman did? She said that if I didn't go down there that particular night, she's going to lose her job. Uh, she took advantage of the fact that I was from the South and a very chivalrous individual. So I wasn't going to be responsible for her losing her job. I went downstairs. One of the fellows there told me that he started drinking when he was four Got drunk when he was four, went five, uh, went five years until he got drunk again, and that's Thanksgiving when he was nine years old. <laughs> well, I couldn't relate to anything like that. I hadn't even taken my first drink till I was about 12. <laughs> Another fellow told me that if I'd stay sober, I could look like he did, and his face was going like this, you know. Uh, you just don't take a drink, you'll look like I do. Well, I'm just sure the devil didn't want to look like he did. Wasn't really any inducement for me to quit drinking. I could manage it. I didn't have any problems, but especially I didn't want to look like him. Thank God that was a reaction from the alcohol, muscular reaction. He's all right now, but he didn't. He sure wasn't then. He had an awful twitch in his face when he'd talk. I didn't want to look like him. But anyway, when I did, when Buck uh, and I looked at that brain and we didn't see anything on that side, I said, Doctor, you got the wrong side of my brain exposed. So he turned me over. I couldn't find a tumor on that side either. There wasn't any tumor there. And I left the hospital still knowing I had a tumor. I knew the machine was faulty. We'd wasted your taxpayer money buying it. Just wouldn't show a tumor when there was a tumor. But I left the hospital thoroughly convinced I wasn't an alcoholic, even if I'd had any doubt about it earlier. And I felt too good to be an alcoholic. I've seen these people that they said were alcoholics. Bowery in New York, on 9th Street in Washington, around town Panhandling. All you had to do to look at them, you could tell they didn't feel good. The only difference was they was drinking and I wasn't. 
But I felt too good to be an alcoholic. I've learned since that your body recovers from the alcohol much quicker than the mind does. My mind had not begun to recover from the effects of the alcohol that I'd been consuming for better than 50 years, off and on. Not off on the last few years, but off and on for many, many years. I didn't realize the shape I was in. I was really a messed up individual. My mind wasn't just negating or rationalizing. It was doing it in combination. I couldn't be an alcoholic. Somewhere along the line, I heard this statement. Somebody made a statement downstairs. They took me downstairs, incidentally, every night. And they came out from everywhere. I didn't know what my hospital bill was going to be, but I knew I was paying the expense of all these people coming. <laughs> Nosy folks. I knew, they said they belonged to a fellowship of some sort. I knew it was like everything else I'd ever belonged to. They always out to get new members. But I was determined I was going to show them that they'd thrown the rope around the neck of the wrong guy. I didn't belong with them. I felt sorry for them, in fact. And I heard this one thing, though, one night. I wasn't trying to hear anything. I certainly wasn't trying to remember anything. But somebody said, uh, Congressman, there's one way maybe you can tell whether you're an alcoholic or not. Well, I had my ears perked up, and I said, how's that? If you can take a drink, you don't have to have another one. In all probability, you're not an alcoholic. But if you take one drink and you feel this very strong urge or compulsion to take another drink, in all probability, you're an alcoholic. Well, I could pass that kind of a test. I remembered it. I'd been out about two weeks, about ready to go back to work, middle of February. And I said, well, before I go back to work now, I'm going to prove to this incompetent doctor, incidentally, he's a lieutenant commander, when he told me that I was an alcoholic, I knew he'd been over-promoted. He'd never be a captain in the Navy. But he is a captain now, and he and, he and I are very close friends. Yeah, I let him think I got him promoted, but I didn't have anything to do with it. But we're the very closest to friends now, but we weren't then, and I hated the guy. And everybody that talked to me about drinking and all that, because I could have drunk any of them under the table, any of them that came to those meetings that night, I thought. Yet there wasn't anything wrong with me. I... But at any rate, I went out during the late afternoon. As I never drank except at night. I went out during the late afternoon. I bought myself two quarts, a hundred proof, vodka. Take one drink. <laughs> well, now you can laugh, but it was very logical to me. I got to thinking, well, I want to have at least one drink and a lot of company may come in. Of course, we hadn't had any company in some bit. Everybody knew that they could talk to me during daytime, maybe. It was some degree of sensibleness on my part, but not at night. They even quit calling me from the district at night. But I bought those two bottles. I took them home and proceeded to have a drink. Now, this is the first miracle, I guess, in my awakening to my problem. First miracle that happened. There are many miracles. When I was drinking, I saved many, many times from death particularly taking as much liberty as I did, drinking on top of it enough to kill any human being, and doing it with regularity toward the end of my drinking. But the first miracle in connection with me getting sober occurred that night. Here I had never had any recollection of ever being required to take a drink. I took a lot of drinks, yes, because I wanted them. But I don't remember ever having any urge to take a drink, any pressure from within to take a drink. Never could I recall it any time. I had gone in the early part of 1974 for 90 days without a drink. But I went to Arkansas. The doctor flew up from Arkansas to see me at my wife's request. I came to, just barely came to, in the bedroom one Sunday afternoon as he was poking my stomach. My stomach was greatly enlarged. And he said I had hepatitis and pancreatitis all at the same time. I had to have some help right quick, and he wanted to know if I wanted to go to the hospital there in Washington. I said, no, I'll go down home. I knew I'd get two more days of drinking if I went home. I knew they didn't serve any drinks in that hospital in Washington. He was talking about taking me over there that afternoon. So I put it off, went down Tuesday, got in the hospital on Tuesday. They filled me full of some antibiotics and all. In two weeks I was up. Doctors never said a word about my drinking except that I'd have to abstain for 90 days to let the organs of my body recover. That they were in, had been in bad shape, that if I had not drank for 90 days, I could get well. Well, I went 90 days. I don't need to tell you what I did on the 91st day, do I? <laughs> I really threw a begging. 
But I knew that I could go without a drink. Because I hadn't even wanted to drink during that 90-day period. period. Not once had I wanted it. Hadn't been compelled to take a drink. On that particular occasion, though, within five minutes, I had this overpowering desire to take a drink. Nothing I could do about it. That, to me, is a miracle. Because had I been able to have avoided that, had I not had that desire, I'm sure I wouldn't be here tonight. I would have been drinking because I would have convinced myself that I was not an alcoholic. Now, whether I would have gone a week, a month, or what, until I got right back in the old pattern, I don't know. But I would have been back in the old pattern. But I still would not have been an alcoholic because I would have remembered, probably, that I didn't have to take the second drink that night. So I think it's a miracle that on that particular occasion, I had that urge to take a drink. The result was, after I drank those two bottles and had a lot more, and I went to New York by private plane, my wife paid the bill later. They found me up there. You know, AA beats anything I ever saw. Nobody knew what hotel I was in at all. This, my secretary called this fellow Buck, and he got some people to come look, go looking for me. They found me. One of them flew back home, back to, down to Dulles Airport with me. They said they took me in Dulles, didn't want anybody in Nashville to see me. Looking like I was. Took me right on out to the hospital. I didn't know this good day who the fellow was. I mean, until some months ago who the fellow was. But I told Buck when I got to the hospital and came to that three people from AA had gotten me drunk in New York. So Buck checked on it to see what happened. And one of this fellow who came down with me did give me a drink on the plane to keep it from tearing it up, he said. So he had given me a drink, but I had interpreted that to mean he got me drunk, you know. He was about ready to fire them all up there. At any rate, I went back to the hospital. I was back in the hospital about 24 hours of the time I took my first drink that night. And I came to, sometime the next day, came to, here was Buck down at the foot of the bed and this incompetent doctor. Silliest grins in the world on their face. Now, for God's sakes, when you're around a person coming out from under his last drunk, I hope that was my last, or any drunk he might have, don't go in his room smiling. (laughs) Go in there with tears in your eyes. Reflect on your face what must be his true feeling inside. Because on this occasion, I was dying. I wanted to drink the worst way. I was sick at my stomach. I had the aches and pains everywhere. Everything I'd never had before happened to me on that occasion. And then Buck, I guess it was, Dr. Buck wants it. What do you think you are now, Wilbur? Say, nosy. What do you think you are now? I said, well, if it'll do you any good, I'll say I'm an alcoholic. It's not what does I say any good, it's what does you good. Now, what are you? Well, I truthfully admitted on that occasion that I was an alcoholic. And I began to accept the fact that I was an alcoholic. And in accepting that fact, I immediately, in my own mind, became the lowest thing that God ever let live. But I still had that Bible Belt feeling where I'd grown up about alcoholism being a matter of morals. I'd become very immoral, I thought. I'd allowed myself to drink enough to where the devil had really taken over. And look what he'd made of me. Because all that, it wasn't a disease to me then. They didn't know what to do with me. They kept me there about two weeks. They started telling me about a place up in Minnesota where they wanted me to go. Told me about a place in Toronto, Canada, where they wanted me to go. Number of other places, every one of them. Now, this is February, remember. Every one of them had snow on the ground where they were. Now, I was... I was insane, but I wasn't crazy. I said, if I'm going to go through the process of treatment or whatever it is you all want me to do, I'm not going to do it in the snow. Found a place in Florida, somewhere where the sun's shining, I'll go down there. But I want it strictly understood. I'm going where they don't have any rules, where I can do as I please, come in when I want to at night and leave when I want to in the morning. Now, find a place like that for me. Well, they lied to me slightly. They told me this place was operated that way, but it's everything else but that. 
Well, they wouldn't even let me out of it by myself for the first two weeks. They wanted somebody been there for two weeks to go with me. I didn't know why. I didn't pay attention to the rules. I went on anyway. But everywhere I'd look, they had a liquor store. They had a bar or something. And I guess they wanted somebody to keep him from going in. But I had no intention of going in one of those things. You see, by then, I wanted to be sober. The only problem was I just didn't want to live. There were two things. I don't know which one was the major thing, but uh, I guess it was the latter one I'm going to tell you about. But anyway, as I left Washington to go to Florida, my wife, whom I hadn't seen for days, she was in the hospital, about to die from my drinking, frankly, left to go to Arkansas. I knew good and well why she's going to Arkansas, because no woman would put up with all the insulting and all the abuse that I had given her, mental and otherwise. She couldn't put up with it. I knew she'd gone to get a divorce. Then I got thinking. I'd be way down in the depths of a depression. Why well, I knew every lawyer in Arkansas. They're all my friends. Not a one of them would sue Wilbur Mills for divorce. They're my friends. And so I'd be up about five minutes, and then the thought had occurred to me. You know, they graduate a new crop every year. I don't know any of them. Nothing in the world would suit one of those youngsters than to have his name in the paper suing Wilbur Mills for a divorce. So I'd be right back down in the dumps. Well, I went down there. This doctor was a pretty good psychiatrist. He could see through me, at least in part. He saw this part of me. He concluded that I didn't have a desire to live. I didn't have the courage to kill myself. I never thought of doing that. And I was eating like a hog and all. I did, doing everything that you do not to die. But I just didn't want to live. I walked in one morning in his office. I'd been there three or four weeks. I walked in one morning. Yes, I walked in the door. He said, Polly's on the phone. She wants to talk to you. Well, he put in the call, I found out later, knowing I was coming for that hour of one-on-one -on -one therapy that they have at these kind of places. I picked up the phone. I said words that I never intended to say because I had made up my mind that I would not ask anybody to help me. Certainly, I wouldn't ask her because I wasn't entitled to ask her for anything. If she wanted a divorce, she was entitled to it. I wouldn't even try to contest it. If she wanted what little I had, she'd be entitled to that. Long as, as uh, uh, she wanted it, I thought she was entitled to it, whatever she wanted, the way I treated her. But words came out of my mouth that I never intended to utter. I said, Polly, I'm lonesome. Won't you come to Florida and stay with me? Another miracle is my voice. But certainly it was not my mind generating those words that my voice uttered. And yet, I said it. It's definitely a miracle. But I didn't intend to say it. I didn't intend to ever ask her. I wouldn't have thought of doing it. I wouldn't have thought of doing it. I had no right to do it. My pride, again, would not allow me to do it. My ego. But she came. She had never intended to get a divorce. And I got to thinking back because occasionally I would read something where I'd gotten a lot of publicity, been doing a lot of foolish things, like going to Tidal Basin and all that. Incidentally, if you go to incidentally, if you go to Washington, get in a cab to go sightseeing, don't ask for the Tidal Basin. It's now known as Mills Landing. I don't know, I don't know what they renamed that theater in uh, in Boston. I have no idea what they renamed it. But I noticed in connection with some of these escapades that she'd be asked for an interview and all she would say was, Wilbur's sick, and I hope he realizes it before it's too late. She knew exactly what was wrong with me. She never hounded me about it. Never once did she say that I was drinking too much. Nobody ever said that to me. Nobody ever said anything about me being an alcoholic until this darn doctor did. Nobody ever mentioned it. She didn't. But she knew I was, no doubt about that. She quit drinking 20 months before I did, and that's what caused me, I guess, to start going out on the town. I'd been drinking with her, and I lost my partner. You know, if I'd have known why she stopped drinking, I would have picketed this, this fellowship everywhere it met. I would have tried to pass legislation outlawing it. I said, you people had taken my drinking partner away from me. You'd upset my household, my plans. You'd made life miserable for me. All of that. But anyway, she came to Florida, and... The doctor got us together and got me to understand that she had never had anything but love for me, and I always felt that way toward her. Our life began 
better than it ever was from that moment on. But the other thing he didn't detect. I left there, I came back to the house. Outside of the fellowship, I don't know of any group of people that showed more care, more love than the membership of the Congress did for me. They were very solicitous of my welfare. They came by me every day, patted me on the back, saying that I looked better. I knew they were lying, but they said it made me feel good. Wilbur, you can beat this thing. You can whip it. That was their language. You can overcome it. Just keep it up. You're doing great. You're doing great. We're all for you. Just keep it up. Giving me courage and all of that. But I couldn't look them in the eye. I was an alcoholic and they weren't. I was beneath them. I wasn't even uh, qualified to associate with them, I thought. I had this awful opinion of myself. I was an alcoholic. And I wanted to take a drink. Every minute of every hour of every day. And here again, my stubbornness, my ego, my pride caused me to do it the hard way. I didn't ask my higher power to take over my problem. I was told to do it. I wouldn't do it. I never asked for him to interfere, in, I mean to intervene in any way with my problem. I just wasn't going to ask anybody to help me. And then one night at a, at some kind of a, a some, uh, one of the meetings somewhere, uh, I think it must have been Buck. It could have been Sandy B or Hal M or somebody. Anyway, some of my friends faced me and said, Wilbur, you're not happy. I didn't say a word. You can't forgive yourself for being an alcoholic. You cannot accept the fact that alcoholism is a disease. You're on a pity pot. They hit me right between the eyes. I couldn't figure out how they knew. That's the way I felt. I wasn't happy. I had a smile that was more broad and, I guess, bigger than Jimmy Carter's. Not as sincere as his. His teeth are, his teeth are cleaner than mine and all. It doesn't look as good as his. But it sure did radiate. I'd put it on a front. Being happy. People would pass by me. Isn't it great to be sober? Oh, wonderful, wonderful to be sober. And I was dying inside, wanting to drink every minute. Admitting that I was better off physically, but I kept telling my wife that I wasn't anything like as well off mentally sober. How do you know? You don't remember. That would stop that, you know. But I was in an awful shape, wanting to drink every minute of every hour and down on myself. I've learned later that I had all the prerequisites for a slip. I didn't have any program. I didn't even have my sponsor's program. I was going to meetings every night because he came by and took me. One night I told him I couldn't go because my wife's sister was in town. Twenty minutes later, knocked on the apartment, and there was Buck. And he said, I said, Buck, what are you doing here? I told you I couldn't go to a meeting. He said, I came by to meet your sister-in-law. <laughs> Needless to say, I went to the meeting even that night. I went to the meetings, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. So finally, this fellow that night said, why don't you practice going over this very simple thought in your mind until finally you believe it. Alcoholism is a disease. Alcoholism is not a stigma. Alcoholism is a disease. Alcoholism is not a disgrace. Now, Hitler proved to the world that you can tell a lie to yourself often enough that you believe that, and this is not a lie. You just say it often enough, and you'll believe it. And I did it. Fact of business, I'd have done anything in the world to stay sober that the man would tell me except ask for help. I woke up one morning, and I didn't have a desire to take a drink. I always had when I'd wake up in the morning. I didn't do it, but I had that desire. I got thinking, I didn't have that desire yesterday. I couldn't remember whether I'd had it the week before or not. To me, the miracle of it is the relationship between my willingness to accept myself as an alcoholic and get off the pity pot and not be down on myself just because I had become addicted to alcohol and the loss of that desire, the lifting of that desire. Now, my higher power didn't do it. I didn't ask him to do it. He may have done it, but I didn't ask him to do it. I stayed sober for that period of time. From the time I got back there in May till this was the end of November or December sometime later on in 75. 
I know I stayed sober out of pure spite. Because every time the media would refer to something I had done, they'd do it in one sentence that had five paragraphs about all that I had done when I was drinking. And I knew the SOBs was trying to get me drunk. And I'd just show them they couldn't get me drunk. I am convinced that I stayed sober that period of time just out of pure spite. After I lost that desire, I lost a lot of other things along with it. I began to lose some of my ego and some of my pride and some of my uh, other characteristics that had kept me from being at all humble enough to ask for any help from anybody. I was told this. You think you're not asking for help? Anytime you go to a meeting, you're asking for help. I hadn't even thought of that. Wasn't long till I had begun to ask my higher power to take over my drinking problem. A day at a time to help me. Now, I still believe, in spite of the fact that I was not communicating with a higher power then, that my higher power gave me the gift of sobriety. I still believe that. I believe it very strongly. I had to say, I had to admit that I was powerless, as powerless, powerful as I thought I had been. I had to admit, finally, that I was powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. Now, if I was powerless over alcohol, there wasn't a thing in the world I could do to rid myself of it. And I didn't think any other human being could do it. Only my higher power could do it. Now, if you think differently, don't, call, don't try to cause me to change my mind. It's, it's fixed on that. Mine is a priceless, sacred gift. It's not something you buy in a five and ten cent store. It has to me a far greater value than anything else that I've ever received from God or anybody else. Now, I stay sober because I go to meetings every night. I associate daily with other recovering alcoholics. You've taught me an awful lot in the course of a short period of time. An awful lot. So much that I wouldn't undo it if I could. I've learned that I don't have to be perfect all the time. And I thought for years when I was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee that I couldn't make a mistake. If I made a mistake, you suffered. The world suffered, so I had to be perfect. In other words, I had to be God, and that's an awful, awful load for a human being to have to carry. Now I know I don't have to be perfect. I know that I can make a mistake. As long as I correct it, I get by with a mistake. It's a great relief, a great relief to know that. Fact of the fact that I must tell you this, there was a time when I felt that the thing ran better, the entire universe ran better when God would leave the throne for a temporary vacation and call on me to sit there. <laughs> we didn't have wars and we didn't have droughts and we didn't have pestilences and things like that when I sat there. I sometimes wondered why he ever came back. This was my ego running wild. Nobody ever knew it. Except me, I kept it covered and inside. And I say now that I wouldn't change a thing in the world about my life if I had it to live over. Not one thing. All of my life, all I ever wanted to do is go to Congress. The time I was eight or nine years old, I wanted to go to Congress. I went to law school never thinking of practicing law. I went to law school because I thought it was a prerequisite to going to Congress. In fact, the business, I came home from law school running for an office, but I hadn't told my father against one of his very best close friends in political office. I took him on, 1934 and won. The man in the congressional seat that I occupied so long was elected to the United States Senate to succeed Senator Joe Robinson, who died in 1937. He was elected in, 19, in November of 1937. Then I was elected in the regular election in 1938. I had campaigned for him. I wanted to get him out of my way so I could run for his seat. 
but the governor of the state was his opponent, and the governor had the responsibility of calling special elections, and he said that to my face that he wasn't going to call a special election because I'd been against him. He wasn't going to do anything to help me. He knew I'd get elected if he called it. He's going to wait till everybody had a poll tax receipt, and then I might not get elected. So I ran in the, spe- in the regular election and was elected to Congress. And I stayed there 38 years. I was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee for 17 years. I did exactly in life what I set out to do. And I wouldn't change one iota of it if I could do it over. And I'm going to tell you tonight, I wouldn't even change the fact that I became an alcoholic if I could do that. Not one bit would I change it. Because tonight, I'm not ashamed about being an alcoholic. I recognize that it is an illness. Nothing in the world I can do about it or any other person who is possessed of whatever it is about our body and mind that causes us to become addicted when people who could drink us under the table are still not addicted and still drinking. Yes, nothing to be ashamed about anymore. In fact, I have learned more in five years than I learned in all of the other years of my life, and I've learned it from you kind of people, you people here, there, and everywhere. You've taught me so much. You've taught me about myself and told me to look inwardly. And you've given me a sense of peace and calmness that I never enjoyed. And one fellow told me one time that I should be happy every day of my life that I'm sober. And I couldn't believe it. And I was home in August of 1975. The last week of August, uh, my mother passed away. And we were very, very close. And I said, now, Sandy doesn't intend for me to be happy on this occasion. I can't be happy today. And I got to thinking. I'd been with her for practically the entire month as she was in the hospital, the month of August. And every time I would ever see her, if it was ten times a day, she'd have to kiss me and kiss me in the mouth. And I know over the years she had smelled alcohol on my breath. But I know during that month of August, she didn't. You know, I was happy. Happy. That before she died, she could kiss me and not smell alcohol. So I said, yes, you're right, Sandy. Not only should one be happy every day, but one should radiate happiness every day. What is my primary objective in life? to stay sober a day at a time. And any day I do that, I've accomplished my primary objective. And you should always be happy when you do that. So I want to tell you that I have learned finally what happiness is. I never knew. I thought I was happy on many occasions. But nothing like the happiness that I've enjoyed in sobriety. Now, God has been good to me in many, many ways. He's been good to me in material ways. But the great goodness that I have attained from sobriety comes from the relationship that I've developed with my higher power, my God. Here I had wandered away, or he had left me, I thought. And I wouldn't call on him for a long time to be helpful to me when he could have been, when I'm sure he was helping me even though I didn't call on him maybe. At any rate, I have a very, very close relationship with my higher power. I'm never alone when I'm in the car, wherever I am, by myself. I'm never by myself anymore. I can feel the presence of my higher power wherever I am. To me, that alone is worth becoming an alcoholic to experience. That alone. I would never have enjoyed that relationship nor that closeness had I not associated with you people. And I would never have associated with you people had I not become an alcoholic. You're rather exclusive in who you associate with. So I say that I wouldn't change a thing in the world about my life. I'm going to tell you something else, and I'm going to close in a minute. But I'm very fortunate that I became an alcoholic. If I had to have one of the three killer diseases... I'm very fortunate that it's alcoholism. 
Now, what would my situation be tonight if I'd had that malignant tumor of the brain? I'd be dead, wouldn't I? What would my situation be if I had what the doctor sent me to the hospital toward the end of November, 1st of December in 74, when he said my blood pressure was excessively high, both above and below the line, if I didn't get some relief? He told me this afterwards. I would have a heart attack or a stroke. Had I had that condition, there wouldn't be a thing in the world I could have done about it. So I very fortunately contracted the one disease of the three that I can do something about. I have the privilege of making the decision to whether I live or whether I die. I couldn't have made that decision with respect to either of the other two. Those of us who are alcoholics, in my opinion, are very fortunate people. We are not, as I thought, the scum of the earth, as I viewed myself as being. We are capable of doing anything now, sober, that our capacities will allow us to do. And you know, I differ from a lot of people. I think my God intended when he gave me sobriety for me to utilize to the maximum of my ability such capacities as he gave me at birth and through training. I do, I feel very strongly that way. Nothing about my life would I change. So I'm going to let you in on a secret tonight. Not only am I a very grateful alcoholic, but I'm a very proud alcoholic. Proud that I am an alcoholic. Proud that I get to associate with people like you. You know, I could talk about you a long time, but let me just tell you this. In Washington, the only place in the world where you can lay a pocketbook down and find it the next day is at an AA meeting. Did you know that? You're honest people. In addition to that, you're caring and you're loving. And you know those people never did charge me one penny for driving a car 100 miles to come to meetings in the Bethesda Hospital, I found out later. Now, who else would do that? Who else would do it? So I say that I am a proud to be alcoholic tonight. Thank you so much.